0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, modeling the impact of the COVID 19 vaccines.
2: Don't leave anyone behind. Make sure that you get that coverage up to literally record levels, well into the high 90%. How magnets could solve the problem of the scarcity. Of oxygen. If you
3: could use that as a way of concentrating the oxygen out of the air, you could get vast amounts of cheap oxygen, but there is a big problem.
1: And Britain wants to join the private sector space race.
4: This is not Cape Canaveral, much more kind of shed like than anything in Cape Canaveral.
1: But first, Across the world, COVID-19 continues to ravage populations. As the global case count nears the grim milestone of 100 million, optimism is in short supply. But there is hope in the form of vaccination. And from Israel, which has vaccinated more of its population than any other country, positive evidence is emerging about the effectiveness of vaccines. Our healthcare correspondent Chenkova, told the Intelligence our daily podcast about this last week. 2 weeks after vaccination,
5: the rate of infection in the vaccinated group really plummeted by about 33%. So this means that vaccination probably prevents not just symptoms of COVID-19, but also infection with the
1: virus and therefore infectiousness to other people. This is the first empirical data suggesting that vaccines reduce transmission of the virus. Over the coming months, as more results are released, the picture will become clearer. On the surface, this could be a very helpful development. But how important is this for flattening the curve of cases of infections? Natasha Loder is the Economist Health Policy Editor. She's been reporting on vaccine modeling and speaking to the experts on the prognosis. Hello, Ken. Natasha, you've been talking to experts who are modelling the path of the COVID-19 virus over the coming months and whether rapid vaccination is going to allow us to relax the lockdowns. Who have you been speaking to?
5: Well, I spoke to Mark Woolhouse. Um, He's a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the University of Edinburgh. And he's been running millions of simulations looking at how vaccinating different groups is going to affect the outcome of the epidemic epidemic and on how it might be possible to release a very tough lockdown uh, that is currently imposed on this country. I asked him, is the evidence from Israel, the fastest country to vaccinate, going to tell us how rapidly the vaccinations will have an impact on the pandemic?
2: I think it's important to remember what we know about the vaccines from the vaccine trials. We know how well they protect against symptomatic infection. That's not actually the most useful piece of information we want. It's the right thing for the vaccine trials to look at. And of course, they also assess safety. So we know the answer to that. But we don't know how well they protect against severe disease. We hope it will be at least as good as it is at protecting against symptoms. May well be better. We also don't know how well it stops people transmitting infection, which you can do in two ways, either by stopping them getting infected in the first place completely, or by, if they do get infected, making them less infectious to others. Now, that kicks in in the middle phase where we got this resurgence if we started to release restrictions too soon, because that basically affects the R number. The less that the vaccine blocks transmission, the bigger the R number will be. And as we all know, if the R number is big enough to go above one, we get a major epidemic.
5: Right. So what you're saying is that if it turns out that these are good at reducing transmission, then it may be that in that middle period, you have more flexibility on what restrictions you lift. And then beyond the six months in that kind of third bucket that you've been looking at, would understanding transmission better give you more certainty six months out or are there other factors?
2: Well, that is definitely one of the big ones. There's a couple of other factors, including actually how long natural immunity and vaccine induced immunity last in the first place, because if they're starting to fade between six and 12 months, then that would have an impact too. But the impact of transmission or transmission blocking over that third phase is crucial for finding out whether we can actually cross the herd immunity threshold. And that means have enough people being protected from infection and indeed prevented from transmitting the infection, either by natural exposure, plus the vaccine to pass what we hope will be a threshold around about 70% of the population, but may turn out to be substantially higher than that.
5: Yeah. I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? How important would you say reaching this herd immunity threshold this year is?
2: Well, let's take a step back. Can we reach it at all? The 70% figure I just gave you essentially assumes a vaccine that is 100% effective. So if you could imagine that the vaccine was only 70% effective, flip side, now we have to vaccinate 100% of people. That is going to be very difficult to do. The coverage of any vaccination programme we regard as success if it hit 95%. Getting everyone vaccinated is very difficult indeed. Worse still, of course, if the vaccine was not so effective, even at 70% in blocking transmission, we couldn't reach herd immunity at all. That's not going to be possible. Now, that's not an all or nothing outcome. That's not a complete disaster. But it means we have to rethink our expectations about what the long term future will look like.
5: I just wanted to turn to Manaus and one of the stories this week really has been there was a city that had supposedly reached a threshold of 75% of the population having been infected and now it's having this huge second wave. What does that tell you about what's going on there? Did they misunderstand how many people were infected with COVID or is it that the threshold for herd immunity is just higher than we had imagined?
2: Yeah, it is a concern and I'm not sure what the answer is in Manaus, but it is possible, and this is just a theoretical speculation, is possible that they do have new variants that have immune escape variants. And that of course is the possibility that everyone's really concerned about. And one of the reasons why they've been so concerned about the movement of that strain from Brazil around the world, which it has shown signs of doing. But one thing I think we can safely say is if that has happened recently in Brazil, it is going to happen somewhere else at some time in the future, And it will keep happening as long as this virus is with us, which is for the foreseeable future, as far as I'm concerned. So this is something, if it's true, if there are immune escape mutants out there, we're going to have to learn how to deal with it.
5: You said for the foreseeable future. What do you mean by foreseeable future?
2: I I mean, my expectation is and has been, I have to say, since last February, is that this will become an endemic infection, what my colleague Peter Pio at London School calls part of the human condition. It's just one of the viruses that plague us. um, And we're going to be living with it forever.
5: One of the things that's really hard to understand is if we're just vaccinating 10, 20, 30 million people, why is it that when you take away restrictions, you're getting a resurgence in your modeling. I mean, you would imagine that it would have a huge impact.
2: Well, the answer is numbers. It probably doesn't feel this way to most of us at the moment, but so far this has been quite a small epidemic. And among the 10 million most vulnerable people in the country, somewhere around 5%, maybe one or 2% more have been exposed to the virus so far. And look at the damage that has caused both to them personally, but also to their health system. But the virus is only infected about five or six, seven percent. Very, very small. Now, we're trying to vaccinate everybody. No vaccination programme has perfect coverage. That leaves another five percent of the 10 million, as many as have already been infected, susceptible to infection. And that's what's causing us the problems. And that's why we're uncertain about how able we will be to, to unwind restrictions once that vaccine rollout is complete. So the message from this is very clear. Yes, roll out the vaccine as fast as you can, but don't leave anyone behind. Make sure that you get that coverage up to literally record levels, well into the high 90%. I mean,
5: I have this impression that summer this year is going to be a lot better. I mean, I have this impression that there will be lots of people vaccinated. We're not going to be back to normal by any means, but there's a good chance that there'll be fewer restrictions and people will be outdoors a lot. And we're not going to be living like this for the next six months. Now, is that overly optimistic?
2: Well, no, I hope you're right. I suspect that too. I particularly think that the summer may be helpful because it does seem to have a big impact on how well this virus spreads and at the very least that we can resume outdoor activities safely to a large extent. But you're quite right to say this is not going to be a normal summer. I mean, one of the questions on everyone's minds is to what extent our governments will allow us to travel over the course of the summer. And that's not certain. That will depend on their risk assessments about the circulation of the virus internationally as well as nationally.
5: Thank you, Professor Woolhouse. That was incredibly interesting.
2: You're very welcome.
1: Natasha Loder and Mark Woolhouse. thank you. And for a wide-ranging look at a fast-changing world, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. Again, that's economist.com slash podcast offer. Next up, Coleridge's line from The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is famous. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Well, a similar sentiment could be said about air. Despite its abundance all around us, oxygen remains very difficult and expensive to collect and bottle in its purer form. David Hambling writes about technology for The Economist and has been looking into this.
3: At the moment, the vast majority of the world's oxygen uh, is supplied by a process of liquefaction and distillation. So that means you have these huge cryogenic plants that cool air right down to about minus 200 centigrade and then distill it out and then store it in big metal cylinders and ship those out. But it's not that cheap. If we really wanted to make oxygen available for some mass applications. We really need to bring the price down quite a lot and that's really not possible with these large cryogenic plants. The other problem with the cryogenic technology is that it's difficult to scale down. You, you can't make a cryogenic plant small enough to sit beside a hospital bed. So for that application, they do have these portable oxygen generators, which use a, a different method known as pressure swing absorption, uh, and those are much more expensive to produce. So that's not really an economical way to produce oxygen on a large scale. What the world really needs is a means of cheaply producing large quantities of oxygen and a mean that can be scaled right up from uh, giant industrial plants right down to portable units. David, can you tell me what uses oxygen might be important for? Well, so at, at the moment, liquid oxygen is, is used for lots of industrial processes such as glass making and steelmaking and pharmaceuticals and things. But one of the objects that researchers have really had their eyes on is this idea of coal gasification. Uh, at the moment coal is a dirty fuel and nobody wants to burn it. One solution to that would be this process called gasification, in which you react coal with pure oxygen and that produces a mixture of CO2 and water. and Because that just produces pure CO2, that's then very easy to extract that stream of carbon dioxide and then stow it somewhere. So basically you've got a a completely emission-free process. Now, if you could carry out coal gasification on a large scale, you could produce abundant green energy. But you can only do that if you have a supply of cheap oxygen. So how do we get the supply of cheap oxygen? There's various different ways of of getting oxygen out of the air. But one of the ones which has fascinated scientists for many decades is this idea of magnetic separation. Oxygen, even though it's a gas, is magnetic. So it's actually attracted to a magnetic field. If you could use that as a way of concentrating the oxygen out of the air, in theory, you could get vast amounts of cheap oxygen. But there is a big problem.
1: What's the big problem?
3: Oxygen is not magnetic in quite the same way as something like iron is. The effect is very, very small. So you only get a very slight increase in concentration of oxygen around a magnet. And the problem is as soon as you try to move that concentrated air around, you suffer from this problem of turbulent flow. The oxygen and the nitrogen all mixes up again, and by the time you've moved it away from the magnet to somewhere else, you find you're right back where you started. The difficulty has always been finding ways of making sure it stays separated out from the rest of the air. and No one in the past has really been able to crack it. Okay, so what is being proposed as the solution? So what we now have is this firm called Aquest, who have a contract from the US Department of Energy. Now they're using a method of magnetic air separation, which uses permanent magnets, uh, which are nice and cheap, and these things called microchannels. And a microchannel, as the name says, is simply a very narrow channel. By using microchannels, you can get air to flow in what's known as laminar flow rather than turbulent flow. That means it flows nice and smoothly and it doesn't mix. So if you pass air through a microchannel along a set of permanent magnets, it will separate tidally into basically an oxygen-rich stream and a nitrogen-rich stream. And the theory is you can then easily skim the oxygen-rich stream out without remixing, and thus you can get an increase in concentration of oxygen. So that's a, a way of concentrating oxygen very simply and easily. It sounds like a
1: tidy solution, but is there any evidence it's going to work, or has it worked?
3: Well, in the first phase of their work, AtQuest say that they have successfully carried out this concentration. However, in the, their first runs, they're only getting an increase of about 0.1%, which highlights the problem that magnetic separation is, is only a, a very slight effect. However, they reckon they can increase this to 0.4% every time they run it through the apparatus. So their idea is that by having several stages, they reckon with 30 stages, they can concentrate oxygen up to about 90%. And if you can do that, you're then up in the commercial industrial range of concentration. And do you think it is achievable in practice? What do you make of this technique? It might be a bit of a long shot, but it's certainly worth it because the the potential rewards are gigantic. On top of that, the new technology could also be a lifesaver. At the moment, portable oxygen generators are really expensive pieces of kit. In theory, because it has no moving parts and just involves blowing air over permanent magnets, magnetic air separation would mean that you could produce very large numbers of cheap oxygen units for medical use. Now, that could make a huge difference in situations like the current pandemic, where we have reports of hospitals and in even entire regions and countries which are literally running out of oxygen.
1: David Hambling,
3: thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys. Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA Copyright 2024.
1: Finally, the Shetland Space program is underway. From a mostly barren crag on the northernmost tip of Great Britain's northernmost island chain, a nascent space center is hoping to host commercially viable satellite launches. The project is happening thanks to British government funding, working with Lockheed Martin, a large American aerospace company and defense contractor. At the same time, the government is also investing in OneWeb, a satellite internet company that has big ideas... But has already gone bankrupt once. So Britain has stellar plans to capitalize on the low cost, low orbit satellite revolution, but will its lofty ambitions come crashing down to Earth? Hal Hodson has been reporting on it for The Economist. Hal, Britain? Space? Really? Well, yes, really, at least
4: if the British government has anything to say about it, absolutely. Britain has never launched a rocket from its own soil, and the government wants to change that and has been spending money in order to change that. They think that small launch, which are basically rockets that are capable of just lifting one satellite to space, in Britain will stimulate the British space economy, and that is their foremost reasoning for having spent public money on this thing.
1: The idea of space satellites has been completely changed over the last decade. Let's dwell on this for a second. Tell me more about this.
4: Yeah, so what has changed the idea of satellites is basically a a different way of making them. Satellites used to be these gigantic, multi-ton objects that cost tens of millions of pounds to make. But what has happened in the last, say, 10, 15 years is a revolution in what's called small sats. These are much smaller, made in much more simple ways, more like a smartphone almost than anything else. And projections are that in the next decade, there will be about, Ten thousand of these small satellites launched and so the sort of commercial thinking goes gosh there's about to be loads of these satellites launched that's going to make a market for launch we should get into that and you could almost say that small sets and small launches are like part you know a pairing in that a small launcher is something that can launch a small sat and you know we're talking in the maximum couple of hundred kilos range i think that one of the companies that we'll talk about in a second, OneWeb, which wants to sort of blanket the sky with satellites for internet connectivity, their satellites are in the 200 kilo, 150 kilo range.
1: Before we get to OneWeb, you've been visiting one of the launch sites. Tell me about that.
4: Yes, in the brief window of time last year when this was possible, I trekked up to the island of Unst in the Shetlands in Scotland. Uh, Unst is the most northerly island in in, in Britain. Uh, it's closer to Bergen in Norway than it is to Edinburgh. And Unst's most northerly peninsula, or almost most northerly, is called Lambaness. And Lambaness is the purported site of uh, Britain's first uh, domestic rocket launch. And so I went to sort of see how it was going. When I got there, at the moment, nothing there. There is the remains of an old RAF base. But there is a company that has received some government money, and importantly, there is a partnership with Lockheed Martin, an American defense giant, that is planning to launch uh, its first rocket in uh, 2022, I believe.
1: Now, if I was a government and I wanted to have an industrial policy, I can understand going to a remote island and developing it into the new Cape Canaveral. But why would you go with an American defense contractor? Why wouldn't you find a British company?
4: What Lockheed's doing is kind of acting as what they call an integrator. Uh, so Lockheed is, you know isn't going to build the rocket itself. It's also you know you mentioned Cape Canaveral. this is not Cape Canaveral. Cape Canaveral is huge, and you know you've got images of like shuttles blasting off and thousands and thousands of people watching. These rockets will be much, much smaller, much more kind of shed-like than anything in Cape Canaveral.
1: Of course, I only said it as a caricature, but let's now go, speaking of caricatures, to OneWeb.
4: What OneWeb is trying to do is put a bunch of satellites in space and beam down the internet to cover the whole globe, remote or urban, with a satellite internet signal that is about as fast as your normal broadband and has as good latency as well. So you'd be able to do all the normal things like video calls. OneWeb went bankrupt because it could not raise any more money from SoftBank, which was one of its main investors. And not being able to raise money from SoftBank is kind of like dying of thirst in a rainstorm. SoftBank is the most profligate investor in the tech world uh, by a long, long way. So
1: why is the British exchequer buying a slice of it?
4: Now that the company's gone bankrupt, its new investors get all of its assets and everything. All, you know, pretty much get to start the business up again for basically free. There's two sides of this. First of all, the government is putting money into small launch. And second of all, the government has just taken a pretty big stake using public money in OneWeb. The problem from the government's perspective is that these two things don't mesh in any way. Because the point of a constellation, a satellite internet constellation, is to have a lot of satellites in space. It's no use putting up one or two. That does nothing for anyone. And so the small launch facilities that the government is subsidizing, there's no to use a horrible business word that it applies very well in this case there's no synergy in terms of the investment in one web and in terms of the subsidy to small launch in the united kingdom because launching one web satellites on say a rocket from Lambanes would just make no sense whatsoever this presents a problem for the for the government in terms of claims that all of this will be commercial because their current setup argues against that
1: how You paint a dismal picture, but of course, the government has stars in its eyes. So what's their argument in favor?
4: Well, look, even if you set aside the commercial viability of the launch firms or even of OneWeb itself, there's a pretty strong argument for spending money on space as a kind of national interest in general. It's it's useful because it inspires people to get involved in science and technology careers. It's useful because it is... It's a show, right? Space is a show, it's exciting. The more and more important information about the planet is being delivered from space, the more important it is that governments have some kind of access to space that they're in control of. And so all of those are very good arguments. What it appears to not be such a great argument is that the government is just stimulating another jolly commercial venture, and that all of this, uh, all, all all of these these companies concerned are, you know, just going to be happy, profitable companies in future. I don't think that's quite as uh, clear cut as the government maybe makes it seem.
1: Hal, you make a stellar argument in favour of it.
4: Thank you, Ken. Good to be on.
1: Thanks, Hal. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. In fact, seriously, press pause right now, come back to the show, rate us, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and tell others what you appreciate about this show. It really matters a lot. Now that you're back with us, you can also email us, and we'd love to hear from you. The address is radio at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Cuquier, and in London, awaiting patiently for my vaccination...